not easy to share one story. It's, it's not easy, especially when there's a lot of um, sad chapters to it. So thank you for sharing that, Jennifer. And um, Like Janine said, we want to be a church family that knows one another's stories. And uh, we've just found that over the years, um, you can sit next to somebody week after week, and you can know kind of that's that person that sits there, but not know much more beyond that. And so we just wanna we just wanna hear one another's story, and and it gives us a lot greater sympathy for one another and a lot greater uh, love for one another. So um, I've been blessed by all the people who've shared so far, and uh, at some point. No doubt we will have you, yes, you, whoever you are, share your story up here. We will not force anybody to do so, of course, but we'll come very close to doing so. No. Why don't we uh, bow our heads for prayer as we get into our teaching this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, we can all be a part of your story, that you make beautiful things out of us. You turn our lives of, of dust and sadness and pain, and you make something very beautiful out of them. And so we're grateful that we're, we can be a part of your larger story, your story behind the story, to recognize that our lives have meaning, they have purpose, they have significance that reaches beyond simply our little world, but our lives have significance throughout the universe. As we get into the Bible this morning, we just pray that we would understand how your story is unfolding and how we fit into that is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a time in my life where I had a, um, a track record of thievery. I used to be a thief. You probably didn't realize this. I guess this is a part of my story I'm sharing right now. But when I was a young boy, I had a little string of, of theft. It all started when I was probably, I don't know, four or five years old. I can remember to this day, we were at a grocery store in Walpole, Massachusetts, right near where I grew up. And uh, I can see where that grocery store is to this day. And I was with my mother and my brother and my sister. Um, my brother and sister are four and five years older than me, respectively. And um, we were, went through the grocery line. And we went, my brother and sister and myself, went out to the entranceway. And you know what they have oftentimes at the entranceway of grocery stores, that they have these little gumball machines, right? You know what I'm talking about? And they have gumballs you can put 25 cents in and you can, you know, turn the dial and you get, you get a, a gumball. Or they have little bouncy balls or they have little candy that you can do so. And um, I don't, I like the idea that there's no little kids in here because I don't like to give ideas to little four and five-year-old kids. But um, somehow, and I'm sure it was because of the influence of my brother. I have no doubt about it. I have no <laughs> doubt about it. I got the idea to stick my hand up into that gumball machine. It was actually the bouncy ball machine. And evidently, I was small enough so that my hand fit. And I reached up, and I grabbed one of those bouncy balls, and I 
pulled it out, and I had my prize. And I, and, I, and, I, and I went home, and my mother hadn't found out about it, but somehow, some way, she discovered that I had stolen this bouncy ball, and she was none too happy, of course. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, if you're a parent, where your child has taken something that's not theirs, but you don't feel very good about it, and you dread trying to make it right, because you're more embarrassed than anything. But what my mother decided to do was, we would return to the grocery store, and I would not only have to return the bouncy ball, but I would have to speak to the manager of the store and explain to him what I had done. Now, the rest of it I don't remember. I probably blacked out after that. But um, suffice it to say, I returned the bouncy ball. You would think that that would be enough to deter my thieving ways, right? You would conclude that such a, an experience would scare any theft out of my heart. But not long after, we had a, a young boy that was about my age who was the only other boy in our church because my dad had just started a church in Boston. And we had to watch him for a week. And um, he had this awesome pair of white shorts. And I don't know what it was, but it had this little metal clip on it. it was, and it was like, man, those things are awesome. I just, I love those things. And uh, I decided that I needed these shorts. And so one night when Lewis was his name, when he was off, you know, taking a tub or something, I returned into my bedroom where those shorts were located. I took them out of his suitcase and I hid them underneath my bureau. And he never knew. And he uh, came back and never noticed anything, and he eventually left. His mother came and picked him up, and there I was, the new owner of a white pair of shorts with a little metal clip on it. Somehow, someway, my mother never discovered that I had taken these shorts, and so I got away with it. Now, about 10 or 15 years later, Lewis and I were roommates at a high school that we went to. And uh, I said to Lewis, do you remember those white shorts you used to own? Of course, he didn't remember those things. Uh, I said, I stole them from you. We got a good laugh out of it. We got a good laugh at it. He thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. Uh, but I was a thief. I was a thief. I don't know if you've ever stolen anything. I won't ask for a show of hands. I won't ask for a show of hands. Perhaps you have had something stolen from you. I've been on the other side. I won't go into the whole story, but when I was 20, I, my apartment was broken into when I lived in Scotland, and they stole a computer and $200 and a sleeping bag. And I tell you what, I felt so wronged. I felt like something was ripped away from me. I felt so demeaned and diminished. I felt like I was, I was dehumanized. Because the reality is, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, is that, and we touched on it a little bit last week, in life, there are two basic orientations that you and I engage in. We are either, at any given moment, we are either giving to people, or we are taking from people. Those are 
one of the only two orientations we have. We are either moving out and giving ourselves to other people, or we are seeking to take from them. One of those ways, the giving way, comes from a place of wholeness, comes from a place of peace and gratitude. And I give from the overflow of who I am. The other, the taking part, comes from a place of scarcity, of lack, of insecurity, of I need to take from you so that I can be made whole. I find that in my life, so many times, I often take, and I would submit to you that the, the, the default orientation of human beings is to be that of taking. Ever since back in the beginning, Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they took what they shouldn't have taken, it all started with that. Ever since then, human beings have had this default orientation that we seek to take from others rather than to give to others. But I would submit to you that the universe, and in this world in particular, the universe was designed for the purpose and designed to operate on the orientation of self-giving love. You and I are designed to only give to others and receive from others. We were not designed to have things taken from us. We were designed to have people give to us and us give to them. And so it has this kind of circular experience, this circular orientation. I receive from somebody and I give to somebody. And round and round and round it goes. I just think of this this last week when our neighbor came over to our house and uh, he had a little box in his hand. And it was a box from Frank's Bake Shop where our friend Jennifer works. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, that's this is a raspberry pie. I'm coming to give this to you. And that was very nice of him. He said, you have, you have given me so much over the course of our, our friendship, our, our neighbor, neighborliness. Camille likes to cook chocolate chip cookies. Amen? Bake chocolate chip cookies. And if she makes, she makes enough, she gives some to our neighbor, Dick. And so he said, for all the nice things you've done for me, I'm going to give to you. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't, Camille does I don't think she does. She doesn't bake the cookies so that Dick will someday give us a raspberry pie. That's not how it works. But it's a circle, isn't it? We give to him, and he gives to us. It's the circle of giving, self-giving. And what I would like to propose to you this morning is that God operates fundamentally on this premise, that he is a God of self-giving love. The most well-known portion passage of Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. It's a very simple thought, and yet it's so profound. God so loved the world that he gave. It is God's nature to give. It is not God's nature to take. Way back in the beginning, human beings got the impression that God was out for himself, that God was out to take from others. Well, I want to look at this passage of Scripture now, just very briefly, that pulls back the curtain on this reality. And it's found in the book of Philippians. Philippians is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to a group of believers who lived in the city of Philippi. Which was, as we have come to discover, was the first place in Europe that 
Paul was able to bring somebody to Jesus. And so this is literally the first Christian church in Europe. Paul, after he became a follower of Jesus, he started traveling around Asia Minor and Asia and Europe, and he started spreading this message about this self-giving God that sent Jesus to die for human beings. And he went there to, Asia, to, to Europe, and he was in Philippi, and he shared this awesome message. Well, eventually, there was one convert, and there was two converts, and there was three converts, and there was ten converts, and we don't know how many exactly there were, but there was enough for a little community, a little Christian, Christ-following community to develop. And things went well, but as with all communities that are filled with human beings, which is to say all communities there arose some dissension and some challenges. And so Paul says he's going to write a letter to try to, try to encourage those saints to, to follow the ways of Jesus again. And so he writes to them. He says to them, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. This is very practical, practical advice that he's giving to this community of Jesus followers, isn't it? He's saying, listen, just get along, which is a simple piece of advice, right? Just get along. Agree with one another. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't just be shallow friends. Learn one another's story. Hear one another's burdens. Carry one another's burdens. Be deep-spirited friends. He says, don't push your way to the what? Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Unfortunately, as I said, this is, this is sort of the default orientation of human beings. We're trying to take from people so that we can get ahead. We live in a a quote, you know, as we like to say, a dog-eat-dog world, don't we? Where everyone's trying to get ahead. Everyone's trying to get a bigger piece of the pie. Everybody is trying to get to the top. We live in a context where, as we were talking last night at our house, for those of us that were gathering together, we live in a zero-sum context, which means there are only winners and there are only losers. You can't be in between. You're either a winner or a loser in the world's estimation. And there's only so many resources to go around, and there's only so many commodities, and so we're all fighting to get all those resources and commodities we can, and so we're taking, and we're taking, and we're taking, but the reality is, if the whole world had this orientation completely all the time, if all we did was take and take and take, I would propose to you that the world would self-implode. It would self-implode. So, so Paul says, listen, don't be acting this way. Don't sweet, don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. You know, again, it's just a very simple thought. Don't be constantly thinking about numero uno. Live a life of self-giving love. Now, how do you find you're doing in that area? I mean, it takes a little reflection to realize that 
our lives are often characterized by us grabbing for ourselves, trying to, to take advantage of others. Even when we, we, uh, we have good behavior, a lot of times we're doing it not from a place of giving, but taking as well. I won't you know, go into all the details, but I do the dishes in our home. Not very well, as Camille will tell you. But I, I often, I can do those dishes from an attitude of giving, or I can do it from an attitude of taking. When I do it from an attitude of giving, it's me being whole and being grateful and saying, you know, I'll do these dishes because I want my wife to be happy. I want to give her happiness. When I do it from a place of taking, I'm trying to take her happiness from her. In other words, I'm trying to make her happy with me. That's a different perspective, isn't it? One is giving out of the overflow. The other is taking, trying to, to address a deficiency in my heart, trying to, to, to fill a lack in my heart. And so even when we look like we're giving, we're sometimes taking. And sometimes when it looks like we're taking, we're sometimes giving. How does that, how does that confuse you? But, but God asks us, Paul is asking us on behalf of God here, to, to operate from a place of wholeness and giving rather than a place of exploitation and taking. Now, here's the problem. You and I can't do that. You and I are not whole enough. We are not secure enough ourselves to be able to accomplish that. And that's why Paul goes on to explain the way it can be done. It's not by us just making up our minds to be nice and patient and giving and loving and kind. We're not capable of doing that because we, by our very nature as human beings, are constantly trying to take and to fill this void. And so what does Paul do? He explains the way of Jesus. He says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. But he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. So Paul is saying right here that Jesus in his fundamental nature is God, but he didn't try to hold on to that status. He didn't try to cling to it and, and pull rank and say, well, I'm, I'm God, and so I'm just going to keep being doing this God thing. It says Jesus did not try to cling. Other translations, other ways, other, other versions of, this, uh, of the Bible put it this way. He did not cling to his power and his authority. He emptied himself, it says, even making himself of no reputation. And it says, he didn't think of himself that he clinged to his advantages of that status no matter what. He says, not at all. When the time came, what did he do? He set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. No other religious philosophy has this as its center to its understanding of deity. No other religion, no other worldview has the picture of a God who would become a man. There is a lot of religions where men want to become God, and men try to become God. But Christianity is the only religion where it's God actually became man in order to lift up 
the fallen, to lift up and to give of himself. It says, having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. We're going to jump ahead here for a second because I want us to understand that man's natural orientation is to climb higher. God, at least the God that the Bible presents, God's orientation is to do what? To go lower. This was, this was brought home to me very acutely. I remember the first time I ever felt bad for Camden and his little competitive ways as a child. I remember we were at the playground, uh, probably when he was three or four years old, and uh, there was this little um, side of the playground where he was trying to climb up, and there was this other boy, probably his age, who started to try to fight with him to be the first one to the top. And uh, I remember they were going at each other, and they were pushing each other, and that was the first time that I ever had encountered Camden being kind of pushed around by another child. Of course, my my fatherly nature wanted to step in, and I, you know, I, I kind of tried to separate it a little bit. But man, I felt so awful for Camden. But then at the same time, I realized that he was as much to blame as the other kid. And I, I it was right then and there that I realized that again, our human inclination, our orientation, is to try to climb higher than others so that we can be the best. Get above others so we can talk down to them. Try to take from others so that we can have, so that they go without. And yet, God's fundamental orientation is to go lower and to give of himself rather than to take for himself. Notice this descent that Jesus experienced, the seven steps of descent some have pointed out, and I'm using a modern version of this to, uh, to summarize what those words were, but notice, the descent of Jesus. You can't see the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but they're there, trust me. Number one, he didn't cling to his advantages. He went lower. He took on the status of a slave. He became human. He stayed human. He lived a selfless, obedient life. He died a selfless, obedient death. And then lastly, not just any death, even the worst kind of death, a crucifixion. In those days, if you were hung on a tree, there was no hope for you whatsoever. Perhaps if the penalty that you received because of your sin was that of being stoned to death, there might be some hope for you. But according to the Hebrew scriptures, if you were hung on a cross, on a tree, there was absolutely, positively no hope for you. And yet, Jesus went to that tree 2,000 years ago. He emptied himself. He went lower and lower and lower so that you and I could be lifted up, so that the circle could continue to go, so that we could experience life and experience eternal life if we so choose, if we embrace the giving way of God's nature and character. Because that's the reality. That's the reality. We've talked a little bit about this the last couple of weeks. But the Bible is not primarily concerned with getting you and me saved. That's a, that's a, a kind of a side theme. 
But what, what the Bible is chiefly concerned with is answering the question, who is God? And can human beings be redeemed such that we embrace and experience that, that orientation of giving once again? That's what, that's, that's what scripture is trying to solve. Is God who he says he is? And can God take sinful, selfish people and bring them back by his love into this experience where they're no longer trying to exploit others and take from others? But can God do with these people what he ultimately is seeking to do with us? And that is bring us to a, and back into the circle where the circle isn't broken and when those things come to us, we don't hold on to them, but we give them forward. Check this out. Back what Paul was writing in Philippians. Check out what happened as a result of Jesus' great dissension. Bottom line there, it says, because of that obedience, God lifted him, that is Jesus, oops, wrong way, he lifted him high and honored, honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. This is the story behind the story that we've we mentioned a few weeks ago. This is the, the big story that's going on, is that God is going to be proven, Jesus will be proven that he is who he says he is. And that all the universe will say, you know what, God, you are indeed a God of self-giving, self-denying love. And that your very nature is that of constantly giving and giving and giving. So that your creatures can be the beneficiaries of your heart of giving. And what he's inviting us to do is to step into that story, to step into that narrative, to step into that experience so that you and I can be channels through which God's self-giving love can be extended to other people. And so instead of being people who are just focused on Getting my own, we are people, because we've beheld the glory of God, because we have beheld the self-giving nature of God, because we recognize that all that we have is a gift from God and is not rightfully ours, because we recognize that we are whole, that we don't have scarcity, because of that, we can give out. And we can give, and we can give, and we can empty ourselves because there's nothing to lose, right? There's nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose. So what about you? You want to enter into that experience? You want to, want to be a, a, a channel through which God can share, share the love? I look at Stephen. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, Stephen. But I'm just grateful. Last week, Stephen had a young man here with him who was hurting and I said, man, here's, a, here's, a, here's Stephen who's wanting to be this channel through which God's love can flow. And, and all of us have those chances to look outside of ourselves by his grace so that the circle can keep on going 
the love can keep on flowing and God's name can be lifted up and other people can feel embraced by his grace. So I want to invite you this morning, this afternoon, to uh, join us as we, we offer our hearts to God. We sing our closing song, which we sang the very first week of our restart. And it's called, Here's My Heart, O God. Let's stand together as we sing this.
heaven. We thank you so much that your heart is heart of giving. You just give and give and give, even when we don't deserve it. So we're thankful that we can embrace that life. We can receive from you and give to others because we have everything we could ever need in Jesus. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus. 